Welcome to The Saint Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our vision is to bring hope to the people of East London, and I'm praying that you would feel so encouraged by this week's talk. Such a privilege to be with you this morning, and those joining online as well, which includes my fiance Laurie and her family who are in Germany. Hi, everyone in Germany. Guten Morgen. My German's coming along very well, two words. Um, it is great to be with you this morning. Um, on the 10th of April, 1912, a ship set sail from the docks of Southampton, headed straight for New York City for its maiden voyage. At the time, it was the largest ship ever to set sail, carrying on board over 2,000 passengers. The ship was designed to be both an amazing feat of engineering mastery and commercial luxury. On the ship, there were squash courts, a Turkish bath, a gym, a barber shop, because you never know when you need a fresh fade on a cruise. They had high-class restaurants. It was also the first ship to ever have a swimming pool on board, as well as hundreds and hundreds of opulent cabins designed on British manners. The design of the ship was so bold and daring, they even named it after the titans of Greek mythology. And they called this ship unsinkable. The name of this ship, of course, is the RMS Titanic. Tragically, four days into its maiden voyage, the ship collided with an iceberg. More than 1,500 passengers and crew died. But when the iceberg hit the Titanic, it hit first the lower decks. Now, the lower decks weren't like the upper decks where the gyms and the barbers and the cabins were. Now, the lower decks were much below. That was where the crew was. It was murky in the lower decks. They didn't even have enough lifeboats. They only had about 20 in the lower decks for all those people. Not even enough for little Leo DiCaprio to jump on board at the end of the movie. No, lower decks. When the iceberg hit, the upper decks didn't even know for hours that the damage had already been done. But below the surface was where the havoc was being wreaked as the water and destruction came and destroyed everything. It wasn't for hours that the upper deck knew anything had gone on. Why do I share that? Because for many of us, our lives can feel a little bit like the upper deck of the Titanic. Everything looks fine, but below the surface, the damage is already being done. And it's only a matter of time before it makes its way up to the surface. I love London. I'm a born and raised Londoner. And life in London appears to be often exciting, adventurous, fast-paced. You know, for many of us, that's why we're in the city, to do something with our lives. Fast-paced, busy. Often, London life in 2023 can demand a lot from us, and the cracks are beginning to appear. I came across an article in The Guardian this week that says this, stress has become so run-of-the-mill that it's now woven into the social fabric of our societies. Many of us feel too burnt out, tired, under pressure to participate in normal life. The burnout epidemic is getting worse. We live at a higher tempo because we're shamed if we fall behind and praised for keeping up, even when it harms us. In a world that glamorizes stress, burnout is a badge of honor. Does that ring true for any of our lives here in London in 2023? And you guys will know the research shows that stress, burnout, leads to increased rates of heart disease, Alzheimer's, anxiety, depression. The cracks are beginning to appear. The iceberg has already hit. And even in the words we use to describe ourselves indicates a little bit of something of what we're doing to our bodies. Words like burnout 
It's a machine image. It describes an engine running without fuel. Is that how you see yourself? As a machine running on empty? How does God describe you? Does God see us as machines? Or what if God's design for your life is something far greater? I wonder if we could look together at how God describes his vision for our lives. If you've got a Bible with you, would you turn with me to John chapter 15? This is Jesus speaking. John 15, verse 1. I, Jesus, am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. And then skipping across the page a little bit to verse 16, he says this. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. It's in this new series that we're kicking off today, A Deeply Formed Life. We're looking at five transformative values of what it means to be formed in the way of Jesus. You know, instead of being formed by the world, by the busy hustle culture of London with its burnout, we're called to be formed by God. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Galatia, a church that he planted, and he says this, My dear children, for whom I am in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Isn't that an amazing thought? That each day, for each of us here, each of us online, if we surrender our lives to God, the promise is we can be formed into the image of Jesus. But it's not an easy thought. It doesn't happen in an instance. You know, Paul uses the imagery of childbirth. Rich Velodas writes this, a deeply formed life is a life marked by integration, intersection, intertwining, and interweaving, holding together multiple layers of spiritual formation. So how does God do it? How are we formed day by day into the image of Jesus? We read from John 15 a few verses that have become to be known as the farewell discourses. It's Jesus's parting words to his disciples before he heads to the cross. And in his closing speech, his halftime match pep talk to his followers, he says, he reminds them of their purpose. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Jesus has chosen you today, and he's appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. I love that. 
That's a verse for London right there. We want to bear fruit in our life. We want to do something with our life that matters, that makes a difference. I wonder, what do you want the fruit of your life to be? Maybe in your career, maybe in your family, in your relationships, for your children. You were created on purpose, for a purpose, by a God who loves you, who knows you. You were called to bear fruit. But for most of us, that's where the story ends in our minds. And we think, great, I'm going to go bear fruit. I'm going to hustle. I'm going to grind. And we burn out in order to bear fruit. But Jesus also caveats the bearing fruit with these verses. Verse 4. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. That's Jesus speaking. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear fruit. But here's the warning. Apart from me, apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. So Jesus reminds his disciples and he reminds us today that we were created. We were designed to be in a loving relationship with our Father in heaven. And he uses the image not of a machine on burnout, but of the image of a vine and branches. You know, maybe today in London, unless you're a plant parent, I found out that term this week. I'm not a plant parent. I don't know much about vines and gardening. But Jesus' first century Jewish followers lived in an agrarian society. They would have been very familiar with the image of a vine and branches and its fruit, grapes. A branch, as you'll know, is connected to the vine by its roots. The branch doesn't have anything that it needs. The vine has all the nutrients. The vine has the minerals. The vine has the food supply that the branch, and more importantly, the fruit, need in order to survive. It's really no good for a branch to be by itself without the vine. It would kill the fruit. It's no good even for the branch to be near the vine. That doesn't do anything. You know, for us, it's no good to just be near Jesus, like Jesus adjacent in our lives. No, we need to be connected to the vine. The branch needs to stay rooted to it. And it's that that Jesus says in his last words to his followers. He says, remain in me, abide in me, stay rooted to me. You know, there are 10 references in just these few verses to that word, abide, live, dwell, remain. And when Jesus repeats something, I've learned it probably means we ought to take notice. That word in Greek comes from the root meno. It means to dwell or to live with. The word meno, to live with, is used so many times in the Bible. One of the occasions it's used is in Luke 24, where we read this. As Jesus approached the village to where they were going, that's the two travelers coming away on the, on the road to Emmaus. Jesus continued on as if he were going further, but they urged him, stay, meno, live with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So Jesus went in to stay, to live with to dwell with, to remain with them. Just like these disciples, Jesus wants to make his home in your life, for us to make our home in him, to be rooted like a branch to its vine so that it might bear fruit. You know, culture today focuses a lot on the fruit of our life. And if you're anything like me, it can be so tempting to constantly think about the fruits. And often it's, it's anxiety-inducing. It weighs us down to be constantly worried about our product, 
how many followers we have on social media, getting that promotion, our relationship status, however much money we might have in the bank. We live in a world that is obsessed with the fruit of our life. But Jesus says, no, don't look at the fruit of your life. Look at the root of your life. That's where Jesus wants our attention here today. How can we stay rooted to Jesus? How can we look below the surface? Jesus says to his followers in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, all the fruit will be given to you as well. You know, the interesting thing about branches and fruit is a branch doesn't have to try to produce fruit. If the branch is connected to the vine, if it's watered, if it has the nutrients, if it has its supply, it will bear fruit. It's what vines do. And Jesus says the same thing to us today. What is the fruit that comes from a life rooted in God? Well, the Apostle Paul, he takes Jesus' words in John 15, and he says them again in Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, is joy, it's peace, it's forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Isn't that the fruit that our world is crying out for? Isn't that the fruit that we're longing for deep down in a world gripped by anxiety and stress and burnout and depression, love and joy and peace? What a vision that Jesus offers. I used to read that as a personality trait checklist, like the Enneagram or Myers-Briggs. Like, I want more love in my life, check. But it's, Jesus doesn't say, I'll offer you to be a more peaceful person. It's peace that Jesus offers. That's the fruit. They're a package deal. It's not fruits. It's fruit of the Spirit. Jesus offers you that life and the life rooted in him, formed in Jesus' image. So how do we do this? How do we cultivate a life formed into the image of Jesus, abiding in Jesus, the true vine? Well, that's where over two millennia within the Christian tradition, of contemplative practices and rhythms can come in handy. What some people have referred to as silence, solitude, and contemplation. Silence, to hear from God. Solitude, not being isolated or alone without community, but solitude of moments of being alone with God. Like how you would nurture any relationship and contemplation, to pause, to breathe, to take a moment to become aware of God's presence with us. Jesus invites us to abide in him through a rhythm of prayer and rest, where we can abide in God's love for us, where we can hear his voice speaking to us, and where we can reset from the noise of this world. Paul writes, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be, there's that word again, transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. If you're longing to, go, to know God's will for your life, his good, pleasing, and perfect will, the Apostle Paul says, renew your mind. Prayer is not just a way to change God's mind about stuff. It's a way for God to change ours. In the fourth century, during the time of the Roman emperor, Constantine, Christianity went from being a persecuted sect to suddenly, almost overnight, becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire. Suddenly it went 
from, to being the state religion. And with that came all the legal protection, wealth, status, power, and privilege. They went from being persecuted to having power far away from the cross-shaped life that the followers of Jesus had been accustomed to living. And so what did they do in the fourth century in order to resist the temptation and the power and the wealth of the world? Women and men of God who felt so called as to reorientate their entire lives to surrendering themselves to God's will for their lives, they went away from the busy cities. And they develop practices of prayer, of spiritual formation, rhythms of silence and solitude and contemplation. The monastic movement started as a protest. It started as a rebellion against the power and corruption of this world. Thomas Merton says this, solitude is to be preserved, not as a luxury, but as a necessity. Not for perfection so much as for simple survival in the life God has given you. In 2023, in a noisy, loud, demanding world, it's imperative for our souls that as followers of Jesus, we reclaim something of these protest practices of silence, of solitude and contemplation, not to escape the world, far from it, to allow the world to be renewed and restored through God's Spirit. But I think this is really difficult for us in 2023. If you're anything like me, we always have some kind of noise in our lives. You know, when I'm traveling, I put my headphones in. When I'm tidying up, Netflix is on in the background. My new thing is listening to a podcast before I fall asleep. Does anyone else do this? A podcast to put you to sleep. It's wonderful. We're surrounded by noise all the time. The French scientist Blaise Pascal says this, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. But Jesus modeled the opposite. Jesus modeled a life of silence and solitude. Jesus, knew, Jesus, who was fully God and fully human, shows us what it's like to live a fully human life. And he modeled a life based on these contemplative rhythms. Luke 5, the news about Jesus spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him. Crowds, that's overwhelming. That's a lot of pressure for Jesus to be healed of their sicknesses. But watch this, verse 16. Jesus often, often is key. It's a practice. It's something he did regularly. He returned to this. He often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. I've seen the need for this in my own life. Speaking today, I've seen the fruit of a life orientated around these rhythms and practices, but it hasn't come naturally to me at all. Far from it. You know, by disposition, I am an extrovert. I think the clinical term is a raging extrovert. Extroverts, back me up, make some noise, please. Extroverts, come on. Yep, introverts, make some noise, please. That was so, that was, that couldn't have gone better. Thank you very much. I'm a raging extrovert. You know, I don't like being alone. Silence sounds like a punishment to me. I don't want that in my life. Typically, I'm not a disciplined person. So when I first heard of these principles, I was like, yeah, you know what, guys? Jesus made me the way I am. I'm made in God's image. He made me to be an extrovert. This is not for me. This is an optional extra. Yes, God did make us, each of us, uniquely, fearfully and wonderfully made. I've actually found that God knows me so well. He knows the antidote to some of the chaos that is often self-created in my life. And so I first kind of discovered 
these things. A few years ago, it was the week before I was about to be ordained in the Church of England. And before you get ordained, they send you off. They ship you away for a week of silent prayer extrovert's best friend. And so I was dreading this. I knew this was coming the whole time. And I was like, oh, can we just get through it? So day one hits. Day two, I'm flagging. Day three, I've had enough of the silence and the prayer. I love prayer, but I'd had enough at that point. And so I decided to sneak out of the retreat center. So I I, I grabbed a friend because I'm an extrovert. I couldn't do this by myself. And we headed out of the doors. I was expecting kind of like a Mission Impossible style escape, but there was, we just walked out the door. It was great, very simple. And so we broke through this kind of retreat center and we had a great day. We walked through the streets of London. It was when England were in the Euros and we were doing kind of well. And so they were like handing out like free drinks and free snacks on the street at the South Bank. We were loving life, having a great extrovert time. We walked along a little further to the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral, where the day after we were going to get ordained. And so we sat on the steps having this great conversation about life and everything that was going on, our hopes, our dreams, our fears. It was wonderful. And then we clocked coming up the stairs to St. Paul's Cathedral, having just broken our silent retreat, was the bishop who was going to ordain us the day... (laughs) after. And she just clocked us in in a very loving way. She said, boys, aren't you meant to be in silence right about now? I don't know if you've ever been busted by a bishop before, but the fear of God was instilled in me. Very graciously, uh, she did ordain us the day after. You'll be pleased to know. But a lot has changed in my life since breaking silent retreat. N.T. Wright says this, it's only when we slow down our lives that we can catch up to God. You might think, Ryan, I don't have time. If only you knew what was in my inbox this week, or if only you knew what it was like to have children and raise a family. There's a lot going on in our lives. You know, often we live our lives constantly at the limit. We don't live our lives with any kind of margin. So it doesn't take an iceberg to knock us out. Often all it takes is a little splinter. You know, I can tell the difference in my own life. Without these practices, even every day, If I miss one, I find myself more irritable, more chaotic, more irrational. I often lash out at the tiniest bit of provocation. That's why for me, it's a daily practice. I need this every day. Find what works for you. And if we don't deal with the stuff in our lives, we just keep going. Eventually, the damage done in the lower decks will seep through. A few years ago, I was at my mum's house. She's moved from London to Kent. My mum lives in Kent now. And um, I was there having lunch at my mum's, and we were watching the football together, which was traumatic because Chelsea were playing, and I'm a Man U fan. And halfway through the match, I went up um, to the kitchen to get a drink of water. And as I was walking, suddenly I blacked out. And the next thing I remember is coming to with my family surrounding me, the dog licking my face. My mum rushed me to A&E. We spent all night there, and it turned out that I'd had a seizure. And it turned out I'd had multiple of these over that year, but I just had no idea because I lived by myself, so I didn't know what was happening. But for three months, the doctors didn't know what was going on. I'm doing fine now. It was a problem with my heart. But for three months, I was waiting for scans and tests and results, and we had no idea what was happening. So the doctors took every precaution, and they they said I couldn't work. I couldn't live by myself. I had to move back home with mom. I couldn't see my friends. I was kind of removed from everything that I knew. 
And I'll be honest, for the first sort of month or so, I didn't want to have anything to do with God. I remember just feeling like there was nothing I had to say because it was all happening below the surface. But eventually, over time, having forcibly had everything in my life stripped away, eventually, I began to notice that I was dealing with a lot that I'd never clocked before. Not just the kind of fear and worry about the health, but the kind of broken dreams of the lockdown and pressures and realizing I had anger towards people who had done this or said this. And there was all of it just came flooding to the surface. And it was during that time, those three months, that kind of removed away from the world, out of necessity more than anything else, that I developed rhythms and practices to help me stay rooted in the vine, many things that I still take with me now. So I've seen in my own life the difference that regular rhythms of prayer, silence, solitude, contemplation can have of being rooted to Jesus. So how do we do this? Well, firstly, I think we can do this daily. You know, maybe even this week, we can start to put some of these practices in. You know, maybe like me, don't start with a week in silent retreat. That was a little bit too much for me, although maybe that's exactly what you want. But maybe even this week, just, you know, cut the last episode of that Netflix binge. Maybe put the phone away. Maybe get an alarm clock so you don't need it in your room and wake up just 10 minutes earlier. Or maybe mornings don't work for you. Find some time. Start tomorrow, whatever works for you. You know, in order to do this, I think we need to get used to silence. We need to reframe distractions. And I think we need to reframe our expectation of what prayer is. That sometimes it's not ecstatic all of the time, and that's okay. Often for me, it takes the first few moments for all of the stuff that's been on my mind that week to come to the surface. I can't believe they said that to me. Well, what am I going to make for dinner tonight? Whatever it is, only once we get past those things are we truly present to God. Rowan Williams says, the real problem of prayer is not the absence of God, but the absence of us. Maybe you want to use something like the Jesus prayer. It's taken from the Eastern tradition. Lord Jesus Christ, Lamb of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you find your mind wandering, pray the Jesus prayer to kind of center yourself back to God's presence. Or tools like Ignatian spirituality or the Lectio Divina. But in my experience, nothing quite beats. Just taking a few moments, set a timer in the stillness and the silence. So daily practices, but secondly, weekly practices. Every week, a 24-hour period to be with Jesus. Sabbath, Jesus, our true Sabbath rest. You know, in Genesis, God created for six days and rested on the seventh. Sabbath was given to the people of God as a gift. Often we think rest is a reward for good work, but not to God. You know, Adam was created and his first day on earth was Sabbath. Imagine that, turning up for a new job, and they're like, that's it, tomorrow have the day off, go home, that's great. (laughs) It's from rest that we work. It's a reminder of our dependence on God, that God can do more with six days than we could do with seven. You know, there's a whole lot to say about things like the Sabbath. I used to think it was just one whole day of sitting in silence in one spot. That sounded really boring. But no, you can do whatever recharges you on the Sabbath. See friends, share a meal, go to church if Sunday is your Sabbath. That's a great thing to do on the Sabbath. It's a time to rest, recharge. These are not how we get loved by God. These practices are not how we are saved. 
We're loved, we're saved because Jesus died on the cross for us. These are just ways to come into his presence. You know, give it a try. Maybe you're in a connect group. This week, maybe in your group, try it together. And then next week, you kind of debrief how it went. Put these practices in. Or we can take things out. Jesus says that the Father prunes the vine so that it will grow healthy. Maybe there are things in your life that you know you need to prune, to cut out. Things that are distracting you, taking you away from abiding in the vine. You know, a dead branch can do serious damage. It's worse than just being fruitless. Dead wood leads to disease and decay to everything around what could be pruned from our life to help us better abide, abide in the vine? Henri Nouwen says, in solitary prayer, we become aware that our identity does not depend on what we've accomplished or possess, that our productivity does not define us, and that our worth is not the same thing as our usefulness. Isn't that beautiful? Your worth is not the same thing as your usefulness. That's what the world needs to hear, that our identity is not based on our achievements or the fruit of our life. Jesus is here today. He invites you to look at the roots of your life, not just the fruit. It's Jesus that we encounter in prayer. So I wonder for us, would we take some time today, this week, to evaluate the lower decks of our life, where could the cracks be occurring? Before it reaches the surface, God wants to meet with us. He wants to help us abide in him by creating these patterns, these principles, these practices of abiding. Jesus says to you today, and I'll land with this, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus wants us to experience his true rest today, away from the pressures of the world, not as a form of escapism, but so that we could be filled with his spirit maintaining communion with God. In a minute, we're going to celebrate communion. It reminds us of our union with God and our union with brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world now who are abiding in the vine so that we could be restored, renewed, experience the love, the joy, and the peace and the hope of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's talk. If you'd like to find out more, give or connect with us, visit our website, saint.church. Have a great week and we'll see you soon.